The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. Oh my gosh. You are listening to Deep Tracks in Rock History, the show in which you are given the entirety of Rock's story from its earliest roots to its latest developments or to whenever I get sick of doing this podcast, whichever one happens first. I am your unsurreptitious host, Doug, the Iceman Cometh McCullough. This is episode 3.2, entitled Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and you, we are, this is crazy. I'm in season three. Year two of my podcast uh, that I am doing on the history of rock, and if you are this is your first time listening, um, this is really designed to be listened to in order. So I, I this is your first episode you're ever hearing. You really should push stop, go back to episode one, and just listen to it all the way through. Or if you're just interested in just the life of Elvis himself, you can just listen to these Elvis episodes on their own. They they are kind of, each time I cover an artist, you know, there's enough information there that you can kind of listen to them in uh, isolation. But uh, I do often make references to other episodes that I've done. And so there might be some places where you're a little confused about what's going on. But you know what? Uh, who cares about any of that? Let's just talk about... Elvis. This this episode right here is the second installment in the early life and career of Elvis. Last time we set up the context for his rise by talking about important figures who were crucial to his discovery as an artist, namely Sam Phillips and Dewey Phillips. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. No relation. That's right. I can't get enough of that. Um, no no relation clip. I used that last episode too. <laughs> when we looked at the story of Elvis's birth and early childhood in Tupelo, Mississippi, we ended the episode with his family's move to Memphis, Tennessee, which also happens to be the title of this episode, um, which you might have thought like, oh, he's just naming it after the place that Elvis is known for getting his starts from. But uh, it's actually um, also the name of a Chuck Berry song released in 1959. And the song starts out um, sort of making you think it's about a guy trying to get in touch with his long lost love, having been separated from her because of her mother getting in between them and breaking them apart. Um, but as the lyrics story develops, you realize it's actually a little kid trying to get in touch with his former playmate who had moved to the other side of town. Anyway, the song, which is simply titled Memphis, Tennessee, would later be covered by not only Elvis uh, himself, but also the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Hollies, and Tom Jones, plus many others. So there you have it. That's our little tidbit of random side trivia. The more you know. But let's dive into today's epic installment of The Life of Elvis. Every dream that I ever dreamed has come true a hundred times. So Vernon and Gladys Presley, uh, they sold practically everything they owned and packed up the car on a Saturday, and they arrived in Memphis the next day. The plan was actually to get settled into their new place over the weekend uh, in time for Elvis to start school at his new school Monday morning. Uh, Vernon got a job at United Paint, making a whopping 85 cents an hour. 
uh, and their new living quarters left much to be desired. They ate, slept, and cooked in one room. But they also qualified for government assistance housing at Lauderdale Courts, which was also near Vernon's work. So they moved into their new home on September 20th, and this would be um, in Elvis's freshman year of high school. Um, accounts. There are accounts from other residents of the courts who recall the Presleys, uh, their, their usual reclusiveness that I've mentioned before, as well as the crazy amount of doting that Vernon and Gladys did on Elvis. You know, he was their their little miracle baby. Um, and he was also, once again, the source of some bullying at his new school. You remember last episode, we talked about some of the bullying he experienced at his previous school. At his new school, uh, there's a story that one of his classmates recalls in which um, she said, Boys used to hide behind buildings and throw things at Elvis, rotten fruit and stuff, because he was different, because he was quiet and he stuttered. And he was a mama's boy. Uh, His sophomore year, he joined the ROTC. He volunteered at the library and took a woodshop where he made projects for his mom, who at this time had found work at a cafeteria downtown. Um, However, Elvis no longer brought his guitar to school and he only ever played for family or close friends. In 1950, Gladys arranged for a guy named Jesse Lee Denson, who was the son of a friend, to start giving Elvis guitar lessons. Jesse Lee was 18 and Elvis was 16. And being a typical preacher's kid, Jesse Lee also had a reputation as being something of a delinquent, (laughs) spending almost as much of his time in juvenile detention as he did out of it. He also hung out with an equally tough group of friends. And although reluctant at first, he eventually did agree to teach Elvis guitar. Uh, This would also provide some more opportunities for public performances for Elvis. Jesse Lee and his hooligan friends were um, kind of also known for their concerts that they did on Market Mall, which was a leafy path that ran down the middle of Lauderdale Courts. And Elvis would also have a couple of flames in 1950. The first was named Betty McMahon, whom he considered his first love and who broke up with him when she started dating some guy from Arkansas. The second of his uh, sort of young loves he had in 1950 was Billy Wardlaw, who actually lived next door to Betty and who described Elvis as a great kisser. And in fact, the the truth of the matter was Elvis felt much more comfortable hanging out with girls than he did with the guys. As his aunt Lillian put it, he'd get out there at night with the girls and he just sang his head off. He was different with the girls. He'd rather have a whole bunch of girls around him than the boys. He didn't care a thing about the boys. And as Goralnik put it, and again, this is uh, Gralnik is speaking in the present tense in this part of his narrative. With the women, he can do no wrong. Young girls or old ladies, they seem drawn to his quiet, hesitant approach, his decorous humility, his respectful scrutiny. The men may have their doubts, but to the women, he is a nice boy, a kind boy, someone both thoughtful and attentive, someone who truly cares. Elvis got a job at a tool shop during the summer before his junior year. And he also began hanging out at a record shop called Charlie's. And not far from there, he found what would become another regular haunt for him. And this is a place we brought it before, Beale Street. In particular, he liked to hang out in front of a, a clothing store on Beale Street known for its loud styles called Lansky's, sporting a uh, bullet hole ridden tuxedo in the front window that purported to be the last tuxedo worn by Machine Gun Kelly. The store was owned by a couple of brothers who remembered Elvis. As they put it, he came down and looked through the windows before he had any money. We knew him strictly by face. He was working at the theater at that time. Holes in his shoes and socks, real shabbily dressed, 
but he stood out. His senior year would see Elvis almost reinventing himself. While he remained, you know, quite shy and lonely with only one or two friends, and by now Billy had broken up with him to date a sailor she'd met at the USO, (laughs) Um, he was nevertheless living out his independence at a louder volume. As a fellow student in Woodshop, Ronnie Trout remembered Elvis that year. He would wear dress pants to school every day. Everybody else wore jeans, but he wore dress pants. And he would wear a coat and a fashion scarf like an ascot tie, as if he were a movie star. Of course, he got a lot of flack for this because he stood out like a sore thumb. People thought, that's really weird. It was like he was already portraying something that he wanted to be. And then in August of 1953, a couple of months after graduating high school, he wandered into what had formerly been known as the Memphis Recording Service, now known as Sun Records. This also happened to be a crucial time for Sam Phillips's little enterprise. The studio, despite having had some nominal success recently with some recordings of the Prisoners, uh, a group of Tennessee state penitentiary inmates who'd gotten special permission to record a record. He was facing money problems, and there was also personality clashes between Sam and his partner at that time, a guy named Jim Bullitt. And this is where I once more borrow from Goralnik, who just paints the picture so perfectly. Things were at a frustrating impasse in August 1953 for Sun Records. At least that was how Marion Kiesker always remembered it when she painfully tried to reconstruct the moment when an 18-year-old Elvis Presley, shy, a little woebegone, cradling his battered, beat-up child's guitar, first walked into the recording studio. Marion remembered that there had been an argument. She recalled that she was herself in tears because Sam had spoken harshly to her. Sometimes in her memory of that moment, the reception area was jammed with people waiting to make a record, sometimes not, but always the young boy with the long, greasy, dirty blonde hair poked his head in the door shyly, tentatively, looking as if he were ready to withdraw at a moment's notice if he just said boo to him, using that look to gain entrance, determined somehow to make himself known. Elvis, in later years, would say that his purpose in going to Sun Records that day was to make a personal record to surprise his mom. But Goralnik is a little dubious of this reasoning, asserting that Elvis could have paid 25 cents at W.T. Grant's on Main Street to cut a record, just like Elvis's own guitar mentor Jesse Lee Denson had done, you know, for making many of his own little records. But Elvis, as Goralnik points out, went to a professional facility where a man who had been written up in the papers would hear him sing. And that's right. Um, Sun Records had been written up in the papers uh, recently, um, for some of the recordings that, um, somewhat successful recordings that uh, Sam Phillips had done. Of course, remember, he had done B.B. King, he had done uh, Howlin' Wolf. Um, so at Sun Records, it would cost Elvis $3.98 plus tax to make a two-sided acetate. And for another dollar, he could have a copy made as well. Elvis chose the cheaper option, but then um, had a conversation with Marion afterwards that she recalled for the rest of her life and shared on more than one occasion in interviews over the years. So here's how she remembers the conversation. Elvis said, if you know anyone that needs a singer, and I said, what kind of a singer are you? He said, I sing all kinds. I said, who do you sound like? I don't sound like nobody. I thought, oh yeah, one of those. What do you sing, Hillbilly? I sing Hillbilly. Well, who do you sound like in Hillbilly? I don't sound like nobody. I'm trying really hard not to do like a really cheesy, goofy Elvis impersonation whenever I'm quoting him. Oh, I don't sound like nobody. Oh, I don't sound like nobody. Oh, little darling, I don't sound like nobody. 
Um, in, in his little recording session, Elvis recorded a couple of songs that were among his regulars that he performed on that little leafy path in Lauderdale Courts. Um, and upon finishing uh, his performance of the second song that he did, he just simply said, that's the end. <laughs> uh, Sam Phillips, who was in the control booth, said Elvis was an interesting singer. And he told him, we might give you a call sometime. He actually did have Marion make a note of Elvis's name, which she misspelled. And um, she also added a side note next to it. Good ballad singer. Hold. So there was, there was something there. There's something there that they heard that, that interested them. It didn't... Um, knock anyone's socks off but it was enough that they put his name down and uh and she made a note of it um but then nothing happened for a long time this is kind of like when little richard first sent his demo into art root um you know just like that elvis would sit in limbo for months waiting he frequently stopped by the studio to check in with marion and ask if any of the groups um that they recorded or represented uh, you know were looking for a singer and marion always sweetly replied no in January of 1954, Elvis went into the studio again to cut another little record, which likewise made no impression on the stern Sam Phillips sitting in the studio's control booth. However, he Elvis was making an impression on Marion Kiesker, who um, could see in him a determination that, as she put it, was so ingenuous there was no way he could go wrong. And by this point, Elvis was probably getting increasingly desperate for some sort of big opportunity in his life. His dad, um, by now, had been out of work frequently over the past year or so because of a bad back. And the stress was visibly getting to Gladys, who had put on a considerable amount of weight during that time and had also started drinking quite heavily. Elvis continued working five days a week, trying to earn money to help with the family finances, you know, telling employers and fellow employees alike that all he wanted to do was make enough money to buy his parents a house. Um, around this time, Elvis met and started dating a girl named Dixie Locke. She was still a junior in high school, and he was her date to her junior prom. Dixie would confide in her diary that she had found her one true love, but Dixie's parents felt very differently. All they could see was a boy with sideburns and long, greasy hair. Remember, this is the 1950s when long meant anything longer than a crew cut. Uh, not to mention his odd style and clothes, all of which he purchased on Bill Street. And a white boy dressing like a black man was just the extra cherry on top of their disdain for and distrust of this kid dating their daughter. Um, conversely, Elvis's parents loved Dixie. And Dixie even came to see Gladys as a second mother. In order to help assuage Dixie's parents' side-eyeing of Elvis, he agreed to attend church with their family. He and Dixie would sit in the back of the chapel and stay just long enough to be noticed. And then when everyone's attention was on the reverend delivering his sermon, they would sneak out the back door and they would head out to the, quote, colored church. Which, I don't know why, but this kind of reminds me of that Simpsons episode when they... Uh, the Simpsons went to Dr. Hibbert's church instead of their usual church. In the more boisterous house of worship. <clears throat> this is awesome. Black God rules. In this quote-unquote colored church. Uh, it's less than a mile away where Reverend Brewster delivered his famously stirring sermons and Queen C. Anderson and the Brewster Rares were the featured soloists. And as a side note, I love that name, Brewster Rares. It's like if I had a music group on my podcast called the McCullough Airs. Oh, that just gave me an idea. D-tracks. Anyway, after soaking in as much as they dared, Elvis and Dixie would then sneak back into her parents' church just before the meeting ended and before anyone noticed that they were gone. In April of 1954, Elvis got a new job driving truck for Crown Electric. 
his dad's back was so bad at this point that Elvis was practically supporting the whole family all on his own. Um, he still continued to audition here and there, trying to get a spot with a music group that was looking for a singer. And things with Dixie were getting more and more serious, and there was even talk of marriage. Then in June of 1954, just a week before Dixie was scheduled to leave for a two-week vacation to Florida with her family, Elvis finally got the long-awaited call from Marion Kiesker. She called around noon and asked, Can you be here by three? And whenever Elvis would recount this story in later years, he would say, I was there by the time she hung up the phone. The reason for Marion's call was that Sam had come across an acetate from the same song publisher who'd uh, actually first hooked him up with the prisoners. On it was, as Goralnik describes it, A plaintive lament called Without You, sung in a quavering voice that was undeniably amateurish, but there was something about it. It had a quality of yearning to it, and Phillips felt with the right voice, maybe it could be something. Its purity, its simplicity, above all, the very amateurishness of the performance put him in mind of the kid who had been stopping by. And remember, this amateurish sound was what Sam had been looking for in his black performers that he recorded. You know, the raw sound of someone filled with more passion than training. He was now bringing that same ear to a young white performer. So they worked on the song all afternoon, and it was not going well. Elvis was just not getting it right. Sam didn't give up, though. He tried other songs to see if any of them would fit Elvis's style better. He even let Elvis pick what songs he wanted to do, anything that evoked strong feelings from the young would-be musician. And um, Elvis wasn't much of a guitar player either. But as Sam put it, I didn't need any more damn virtuosos. He wanted something deeper than technique, something that was visceral. At the end of the session, which lasted over three hours, Elvis was exhausted but excited. It had been a slog. But the fact that he'd been kept there for that long and that his salmon had worked with him that much, it meant that the man on the other side of the glass in that control booth heard something in the young 19-year-old kid. Being called back at all had been a success, right? Um, a week later, Dixie left for Florida. And then the next day after that, in the afternoon, a young guitarist named Scotty Moore visited Sun Records. And this is where the story is about to get good. And this is also where we're going to end this episode. And uh, with that cliffhanger, we'll pick up next episode with this Scotty Moore character and what he means for Elvis. So, don't miss it. And until then, my friends, you know what to do. Keep it deep! I learned very early in life that without a song, today would never end. Without a song, a man ain't got a friend. Without, without a song, the world would never bend. Without a song. So I keep singing a song.